0: Welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Remy, a computerized animated voice. This is Simple Reflections of Christianity, where we look at the issues of Christianity in today's world and seek the wisdom of our peers from antiquity. And we do all this in plain English for the average person. Too often, issues is are spoken with scholarly jargon and thus making it inaccessible to the average person. We are not all working on our PhDs here. So, the scriptural references will be from the authorized version Cambridge 1873 King James unless otherwise stated. Many, of the references will be the peers of antiquity who spoke on the topics we will have in our discussions. Thank you for joining, in and of course please like, subscribe and follow for more message like this. We can all learn a thing or two from the saints who have gone before us. And we can also see the errors which have popped their ugly head up as well. Thanks again and welcome to Simple Reflections of Christianity Podcast with me Remy, you host. Chapter 1 The Scriptures Are the Word of God Section 1. The Internal Evidence of the Divine Origin of the Scriptures It often happens that those who hear the Gospel, doubt whether it is really the Word of God. Having been taught from infancy to regard it as a divine revelation, and knowing no sufficient reason for rejecting it, they yield a general assent to its claims. There are times, however, when they would gladly be more fully assured that the Bible is not a cunningly devised fable. They think if that point was absolutely certain, they would at once submit to all the gospel requires. Such doubts do not arise from any deficiency in the evidence of the divine authority of the Scriptures, nor would they be removed by any increase of that evidence. They have their origin in the state of the heart. The most important of all the evidences of Christianity— can never be properly appreciated unless the heart is right in the sight of God. The same exhibition of truth which produces unwavering conviction in one mind, leaves another in a state of doubt or unbelief. And the same mind often passes rapidly, though rationally, from a state of skepticism to that of faith, without any change in the mere external evidence presented to it. No amount of mere external evidence can produce genuine faith. The Israelites, who had seen a long succession of wonders in the land of Egypt, who had passed through the divided waters of the Red Sea? Who were daily receiving food from heaven by miracle? Who had trembled at the manifestations of the divine majesty on Mount Sinai, within sight of that mountain, made a golden calf their god? The men who saw the miracles of Christ performed almost daily in their presence cried out, "Crucify him! Crucify him!" Hence, our Savior said that those who will not hear Moses and the prophets would not be persuaded that one rose from the dead. We may confidently conclude, therefore that those who now do not believe the gospel, would not be persuaded had they seen all the miracles which Christ performed. It is important that the attention of the doubting should be directed to the fact that their lack of faith is to be attributed to their own moral state, and not to any deficiency in the evidence of the truth. If our gospel is hidden, says the Apostle, it is hidden to those who are lost, in whom the God of this world has blinded the minds of those who do not believe, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, should shine unto them. There is nothing in the doctrine stated here, that is out of analogy with our daily experience. No truth can be properly apprehended unless there is a harmony between it and the mind to which it is presented. Even abstract or speculative truths are not seen to be true, unless the understanding is duly cultivated to apprehend them. With regard to objects of taste, unless there is a power to perceive the correspondence between them and the standard of beauty, there can be no appreciation of their excellence. And still more obviously, in regard to moral and religious truth, there must be a state of mind suited to their apprehension. If our moral sense were entirely destroyed by sin, we could have no perception of moral distinctions. If it is vitiated, what is true in itself and true in the view of the pure in heart will not be true to us. A man who has no adequate sense of the evil of sin cannot believe in the justice of God. If you awaken his conscience, he is convinced at once, without the intervention of any process of proof. No one can fail to remark that the Bible demands immediate and implicit faith from all who read it. It may lie neglected in the study of the philosopher, or in the chest of the outcast sailor, or it may be given by a missionary still ignorant of the language of the heathen to whom he ministers. The moment it is opened, however in these or any other circumstances, it utters the same calm voice, He that believes in the Son has everlasting life, he that does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Joe 3.36 If this demand was confined to the educated, we might suppose it to rest on evidence which only the educated are able to appreciate, or if it was made only of those to whom the scriptures are presented by regularly commissioned ministers, we might suppose it rested on their authority, but it is not thus confined. It is inseparable from the word itself. It is as imperative when the Bible is read by a child to a company of pagans, as when it is proclaimed in a cathedral. But if this demand of faith goes with the Word wherever it goes, it must rest upon evidence contained in the Word itself. The demand of faith cannot be more extensive than the exhibition of evidence. Therefore, unless we restrict the obligation and the benefits of faith to those who are capable of appreciating the external evidence of the Bible, we must admit that it contains its own evidence. To make the testimony of others to the truth of Christianity, the ground of faith, is inadmissible for two obvious reasons. In the first place, as already intimated, it is not sufficiently extensive. The obligation to believe rests on multitudes to whom that testimony is not addressed. In the second place, it is entirely inadequate. The great mass of men cannot be required to believe, upon the testimony of the learned few, a religion which is to control their conduct in this world, and to decide their destiny in the next. Besides, learned men testify in behalf of the Qur'an as well as in favor of the Bible. Therefore, That cannot be an adequate ground of faith, which may be urged in support of error as well as of truth. To require average people to be able to see why the testimony of learned Christians may safely be relied upon, while that of learned Muslims should be rejected, is to require of them a task as severe as the examination of the historical evidences of Christianity. There is, therefore, no way of justifying the universal, immediate, and authoritative demand, which the Bible makes on our faith except by admitting that it contains within itself the proofs of its divine origin. It may not be easy, or perhaps possible, to give any adequate exhibition of the nature of this proof to those who profess not to see it. However, enough may be said to show that it is a rational and adequate ground for implicit confidence. Every work bears the impress of its maker. Even among men, it is hard for one man to successfully counterfeit the work of another. Is it wonderful, then, that the works of God should bear the inimitable impress of their author? Don't the heavens declare His glory? Doesn't the mechanism of an insect as clearly evince the workmanship of God? Why then should it be deemed incredible that His word should contain inherent evidence of its divine origin? If the Bible is the work of God, it must contain the impress of His character, and thereby evince itself to be divine. It may be objected that we're not competent to judge this evidence if it requires so much cultivation of the intellect to judge the excellence of human productions, and so accurate an acquaintance with the character of their authors, in order to decide on the genuineness of such productions, who can pretend to a knowledge of God which will enable him to judge what is, or what is not worthy of his hand? This would be a fatal objection if the internal evidence of the scriptures consisted in their intellectual excellence. It loses its force, however, when it is remembered that this excellence is, in great measure, moral, and that goodness carries with it its own evidence. To appreciate evidence of this kind requires no great degree of knowledge or refinement. It requires merely right moral feelings. Where these exist, the evidence that goodness is goodness, is immediate and irresistible. It is not because the Bible is written with more than human skill, and that its discrimination of character or its eloquence is beyond the powers of man, that we believe it to be divine. These are matters of which the mass of men are incompetent judges. The evidence in question is suited to the apprehension of the humblest child of God. It is partly negative and partly positive. It consists, in the first place, in the absence of everything incompatible with a divine origin. There is nothing inconsistent with reason, and there is nothing inconsistent with goodness. If the scriptures contained anything contrary to reason or to right moral feeling, then belief in its divine origin would be impossible. Such a belief would involve the ascription of folly or sin to its author. There is more in this negative evidence than we are apt to imagine. It cannot be urged in behalf of any other book but the Bible, claiming a divine origin. An impassable gulf is thus placed between the scriptures and all apocryphal writings. The claims of the latter are in every instance disproved by the fact that they contain statements which cannot be true. It is, however, the positive internal evidence of a divine origin, which gives power and authority to the claims of the Bible. This evidence consists mainly in its perfect holiness, in the correspondence between all its statements respecting God, man, redemption and a future state, and all our own right judgments, reasonable apprehensions and personal experience. When the mind is enlightened to see this holiness, when it perceives how exactly the rule of duty prescribed in the Word of God agrees with that enforced by conscience, how the account which it gives of human nature coincides with human experience, how fully it meets our whole case— when it feels how powerfully the truths presented there operate to purify, console, and sustain the soul, then the belief of the scriptures is a necessary consequence. The idea that such a book is a lie and a forgery involves a contradiction. The human mind is so constituted that it cannot refuse its assent to evidence, when clearly perceived. We cannot withhold our confidence from a man whose moral excellence is plainly, variously, and constantly manifested. We cannot see and feel his goodness— and yet believe him to be an imposter or deceiver. In like manner, we cannot see the excellence of the Scriptures, and yet believe them to be one enormous falsehood. The Bible claims to be the Word of God, it speaks in His name, it assumes His authority. How can these claims be false and yet the Bible be so holy? How can falsehood be an element of perfect excellence? The only possible way of shaking our confidence in the competent testimony of a man, is to show that he is not a good man. If his goodness is admitted, Confidence in his word cannot be withheld, and especially when all he says finds its confirmation in our own experience, and commends itself to our conscience and judgment. Thus it is also impossible that we should discern the excellence of the scriptures and feel their correspondence with our experience and necessities, and yet suppose them to be untrue. When the woman of Samaria reported to her townsmen that Jesus had told her all that she ever did, many of them believed. But after they had themselves listened to his instructions, they said to the woman, Now we believe, not because of your saying, for we have heard him ourselves, and know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. Joe 4.42 No Christian can be surprised at this declaration, or think the faith in Christ, founded on what he said, is either irrational or enthusiastic. We can well believe that there was such an ineffable manifestation of goodness in the Redeemer's countenance, manner, and doctrines, as to conciliate entire confidence those who were rightly affected could not fail to believe all He said, that He was the Christ, that He came to seek and save those who are lost, to lay down His life for His sheep, and to give Himself a ransom for many. Can we doubt that the goodness of the Savior, the elevation, holiness and power of His instructions, their correspondence with our own nature, experience, and wants, would of themselves constitute an adequate ground of faith? All this we have. Every man has this, who reads the Bible." There, the Savior stands in the majesty of unapproachable excellence. He utters in every hearing ear the words of eternal life, declares his origin, his mission, the design of his advent and death, offers pardon and eternal life to those who come to God through him. There is the most perfect accordance between his claims and his conduct, between his doctrines and what we know and what we need. To disbelieve him, is to believe him to be a deceiver, and to believe this, is to disbelieve our own perceptions. For we know what goodness is and we know that goodness cannot deceive, that God cannot lie. It makes very little difference as to the force of this kind of evidence, whether we personally saw and heard the Saviour for ourselves, or whether we read the exhibition of His character and the record of His instructions. For the evidence lies in His goodness and in the nature of His doctrines. It is the same to us who read the Bible, as it was to those who heard the Saviour. There is therefore the same violence done to reason and duty, in our rejecting it, as was offered by those who did not believe because they were not his sheep, that is, because they were insensible to the constraining influence of the grace and truth which were in him. Does anyone ask, then, how we know that the Bible is not a forgery? Let him consider what such an assumption involves. It supposes either that the authors of the Bible were fools, which we can no more believe than to believe Newton was an idiot, or that they were wicked, which no man can believe who knows what goodness is. Therefore, Wherever the Bible goes, it carries with it, evidence that is irresistible, when attended to and appreciated, that its authors were neither dupes nor deceivers. It may be asked, if the Bible contains such clear evidence of its divine origin, why are there so many unbelievers? To this it may be answered that there are two things necessary in order that evidence should produce conviction. The first is that it should be attended to, otherwise it might as well not exist. Of the many millions of people in Christendom, comparatively few give the Scriptures any serious attention. That such persons should have no effective faith, is no more a matter of surprise than that they should be ignorant of what they never learned. The second requisite for the reception of evidence, is that it should be understood or really apprehended. If this evidence is addressed to the understanding, there must be enough strength of mind to comprehend its nature and bearing, If addressed to the moral faculty, there must be moral sensibility to appreciate it, or it will be like light shining on the eyes of the blind. The internal evidence of the scriptures is in a great measure of this latter kind. It consists in their perfect holiness. In proportion to men being corrupt, they are blind to this kind of evidence. It may exist in all its force and men be insensible to it. Another part of this evidence consists in the accordance between the scriptures and the religious experience of men those who don't have the experience, cannot see this accordance. Still another portion of the evidence is made available by the power of God in subduing sin, in purifying the affections, in diffusing peace and joy through the heart. Those who have never felt this power cannot appreciate this kind of proof. The fact, therefore, that so large a proportion of mankind have no adequate faith in the Scriptures, affords no presumption against the existence of sufficient evidence. This fact is in exact accordance with what the Bible teaches about the moral state of man. Another objection to the view of the ground of faith given above is that it leads to enthusiasm, baseless emotionalism, and breaks down the distinction between true and false religion. Every enthusiast, it is said, thinks he sees wonderful excellence in the pretended revelations which he embraces. It is a sufficient answer to this objection to ask whether the scholar has less faith in the excellence of the great standards of poetry because the writers of doggerel rhymes have had their admirers? That the sensual, selfish and cruel character of Muhammad appears good in the eyes of a Turk, does not prove him to be an enthusiast who bows with reverence before the supreme excellence of Jesus Christ. That the pagan world saw evidence of the existence of their gods in the heavens and in the course of nature, does not make him an enthusiast, who recognizes in the works of God the manifestations of infinite power, wisdom, and goodness. It is most unreasonable to assume that we must not feel the force of truth and excellence, because others have ascribed these attributes to error and vice. It is not according to the constitution of our nature, that one man should cease to know a thing to be true or good, because others do not see it. The evidence is complete for him, though all the world rejects it. If it is asked, where the standard is, what criterion of excellence exists by which I am authorized to decide that what I call goodness is really such, the rule is given in the nature of man. We know that benevolence is better than malice, veracity than deceit, humility than pride, and by the same rule we know that Christianity is better than Hinduism, and the blessed Redeemer than the Arabian impostor. No judgment can be more sure than this, no persuasion more intimate, no confidence either more firm or more rational. Therefore, it is no objection against admitting the excellence of the scriptures as proof of their divine origin that besotted or deluded men have ascribed excellence to folly and wickedness. Charles Hodge, December 27, 1797, June 19, 1878, was a Reformed Presbyterian theologian and principal of Princeton Theological Seminary between 1851 and 1878.